abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan, and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Welcome back to Waterline. I can still, to this day, remember how excited I was when I first encountered a magic square. As a kid who did not do well in mathematics, and to this day people close to me question my abilities when it comes to basic arithmetic, being able to understand fully something that has to do with numbers was exhilarating. You see, the magic in magic squares is that the sum in each row, column, and diagonal of seemingly random numbers is equal. Seldomly, if at all, we get to see this phenomenon in real life. For me, a realistic example of a magic square is WASH, an acronym for Water, Sanitation and Hygiene, the Water and Wastewater Magic Square, if you will. The UN declared that any human being, no matter where in the world, is entitled to have access to safe water, adequate sanitation, as well as having the knowledge of basic hygiene practices. To be able to drink water that is pure and contaminant-free, to have a facility that separates human waste from human contact, that's the UN's way of saying toilet, and to know that after using the facility that separates human, etc., etc., one should use soap and water to avoid disease spreading. To our ears, it sounds so basic. We usually learn these lessons during potty training. However, if we stop for just a second and raise our eyes above our Frappa Kappa Chico Chino Soy Lattes, we'll see that roughly 2.5 billion people don't have access to improved sanitation. 800 million people don't even have access to clean water. And, quite unfortunately, 946 million people defecate in the open. According to the United Nations data, 7 out of 10 people without access to improved sanitation and 9 out of 10 people who have to go in the open live in rural areas. If you go in the open, you contaminate water sources. Consuming contaminated water results in illness. Too late for soap at this point. Fatal illnesses spread and the most vulnerable, young children, the elderly, and pregnant women, are usually those who suffer the most. Hundreds of thousands of children under the age of five die each year from preventable diarrhea-related diseases caused by lack of access to water, sanitation, and hygiene. It's a vicious cycle. The world is constantly on the lookout for new and improved technologies and designs to promote WASH. And WASH projects are the focus of the PEERS program 
for Global Innovation. I'm Dr. Elise Inbal. I'm the head and the founder of the Pairs Program for Global Innovation, which is an Israeli nonprofit that has existed for 10 years now, whose purpose is to make Israel a more important source of technological solutions for developing countries. And so we work very closely with the private sector. We give a lot of pro bono support to Israeli companies that are interested in emerging markets. We have a venture builder where we develop new companies called the Paris Challenge. And we also do a lot of work with the government, um, advising them on policies that they can adopt in order to support Israeli companies that are interested in moving into emerging markets. So you are somewhat of an... Archimedean point? Ha! As in a focal point. Oh, now, now I have to remember my geometry, right? Uh, yes, I think that the, the answer is yes, in that we bring together the government, the private sector, the innovation sector in Israel. But I tend to also think of us more as an ecosystem builder, in the sense that when we started the program, there were no startups in Israel, or almost no startups in Israel, that were targeting needs of people in emerging markets, which are actually the fastest growing markets in, in the world. And so the initial question of my program was, what is missing from the ecosystem that stops an innovator from waking up in the morning and saying to himself, instead of, oh, I want to solve a problem for California, or I want to solve a problem for a gamer, uh, I want to solve a problem for a person in India or in Nigeria or in Ecuador. But worldwide, it seems to be the same story. Uh, yes, but as in uh, still it is very true that more, a lot more innovation is targeting the rich people's problems than poor people's problems. But that's because I would assume that the ROI is higher. Uh, their ROI is higher in the immediate term. However, the question is, is what is your time perspective? Because if you're looking longer term, the highest amount of growth is happening in developing countries and not in developed countries. You won't find, if you look at the list of the top 10 fastest growing countries in the world, none of them will be countries of the West. None. And then you look at what's happening in China and you look at what's happening in India and you look at what's happening in, in, in several markets in Africa and you see that there are these countries which are transforming overnight and with that transformation is coming a very large appetite for technological solutions in order to meet their needs in fields which Israel has a lot of expertise in. Of course, number one on that list is water. So let's talk water. Okay. So Soapy is one of the companies that, that we have helped develop through our venture builder. Uh, Soapy is a company that's looking at the problem of hygiene in the world. Now, if you look at what the statistics are, today about 6,000 children every single day die of water-related diseases, 2,000 children under the age of five, and more children in the world get sick and die of hygiene-related disease than of water drinking water-related disease. So something extremely preventable. Something extremely preventable, and yet something which we don't have enough solutions for. Because actually, there's very little technology innovation today which is looking at this problem of hygiene. But you're talking about technology. All you need is just some water and soap. Yes, no? but a very large per percentage of the world has no access to water. I think that the statistics today are that uh, over 600 million people today um, still have no access to clean water. 
And so drinking water is one part of the problem, but um, having access to even minimal amounts of water for washing hands and soap is another problem and is something which we, sh- we really need to deal with separately because in order to address it, especially in places where there's a lot of water scarcity, we need solutions which need very, very little water and have some kind of soap, which also needs very little water. So here's where Soapy came into the picture. What Soapy developed was a hand-washing station, which can function either without electricity or without water. So in other words, if you have a hookup to electricity, then the hand-washing station will pull out water from the atmosphere And that water, in the way the hand-washing station works, the station uses much less water than normally you would use if you were washing your hands under a tap. And that hand-washing station will be enough in order to have over 100 school children in one day be able to wash their hands. And on the other hand, if you don't have electricity and you do have a hookup to clean water, then the stations can be used again in order to hook up to clean water. So Soapy has had a lot of success so far in India. They've been placing hand-washing stations, particularly in schools, throughout India. And what they found is, is that by having these hand-washing stations there, they're actually increasing attendance to schools. How come? Probably two reasons. Initially, because it's sort of cool to be able to go to school and use this high-tech hand-washing station. But much more importantly, once again, if you don't have proper hygiene, then you have disease spreading. And so a lot fewer children in the schools where there are soapy hand-washing stations are, are becoming sick and not showing up at school because of illness. But school is just, what, eight hours out of their day? I mean, they don't have soapy at home. It sounds as if you're doing a commercial for soapy, but we're talking about the notion of being able to wash your hands. So if it's only in one part of your day, in one specific place, I, I can't really see the, how the impact is so great. Do you have kids? No, not yet. Okay. One day you will have a child, maybe. And when you have a child, your child, your baby will be at home and he will be really great when it comes to illness. Like, he won't get sick very often, God willing, and everything will be fine. And then will come the day when you will decide to put him in daycare. And on that day, your child will come home with the flu or with diarrhea. And your child will remain sick for a lot of his first year in the daycare because places where children gather are, are cesspools of disease. <laughs> put it mildly. A petri dish. A petri dish of disease. So you're right. It's not a perfect solution. But if I had to choose between letting children wash hands at school and having them wash hands at home, I would actually say that school is more important because it's that interaction between children that, that is such a huge breeding ground for disease. You know, water crises and wash comes into play not only in developing countries or underdeveloped areas, but... It can happen to a Western developed country as well, especially when natural disaster hits. The first thing that happens when a natural disaster occurs, international aid sends to those places water in bulk because when you don't have clean water, there's an outbreak of disease. Wash comes into play in these places as well. Uh, I'd say that it comes to, into play even more so in these places because the need is so acute. And, of course, it's like if you have a crisis, the first thing you have to take care of is that there will not be a spread of disease. 
And I've seen one statistic which says that 40% of the people who die in crises are actually not dying because they've been shot at or because they've been swept away in a tsunami, but are dying in the aftermath of the crisis because of water-related diseases, whether it's because they have no access to clean drinking water or because they have vector-related diseases that are happening because there's no proper sanitation or they have no access to hygiene. So this is a very big issue, and it's an issue where there actually is a lot of money to solve the problem because I can tell you that over the past decade, the amount of money which is being spent on humanitarian aid has tripled. And also, when you look at the numbers, there are 80 million displaced people in the world today, which is a higher number than at any time since World War II. So this is an enormous issue, and there's an enormous amount of money coming to solve the issue, and there aren't solutions. We don't have solutions for when you suddenly have a large number of people who are gathering in an area, waste management. So you need to build toilets, but you also have a way to deal with the waste that comes out of that to- those toilets. Normally in crises, so the first thing you do is you bring in bottled water because you have no choice. Bringing in bottled water for, for hundreds of thousands of people is not sustainable for more than a couple of days or a couple of weeks. And so then you have to think about solutions for storing water, solutions for finding water locally, for purifying the water that you have found, for providing water in dispersed communities. With hygiene, you have have to think a lot about hygiene because all of a sudden you have a lot of people in a very small region and that's a breeding ground for disease. And so that means education and education solutions. It means how do you get soap out to these people? Can I tell you one of my favorite soap innovations? Part of the problem of hygiene is just education. And how do you educate people to actually use soap? So one humanitarian aid NGO has started giving out soap with little toys inside it. Hmm. And then kids actually, you know, wash their hands. And they had to engineer the soap in a way that it would be impossible for a child to just break the soap to get the toy. (laughs) So they have to actually wash their hands repeatedly in order to get. So that's something that's being used now in refugees camp. Their refugee camps is the soap with a toy in it. So there's and that's all... not and that's not cutting edge technology, IoT, big data. That's basic, playful contact. Human of, design. Exactly of of enjoying a game, enjoying the play. Yep, that's design thinking. But but we need both. Some of the solutions and some of the parts of the solutions we need are ones that are just very creative solutions that reflect a real understanding of people, but also that we don't have technologies that can adequately, at point of use, at an, and inexpensively purify water. Anud Kenny, who our avid listeners remember from the episode Yes, I Can, is an engineer who studied for a master's degree in environmental studies at the Tel Aviv University. During our conversation, he told me a story about a good idea that went wrong. Our Prime Minister, Prime Minister Modi, he set out a scheme called Swachh Bharat Abhiyan, where he said that he's going to provide a toilet in each and every house of the country. So if I divide 1.2 billion people into five persons' households, yeah. you're still talking about millions uh, of times. Yes, they have been successful in building those toilets. Now, I'll break this issue down into parts. First of all, if you go to 
people in the West or in the developed world, they would be like, yeah, it's great, build a toilet. But you come to India, you go to the villages, you, you don't go to Mumbai or you don't go to Delhi or Bangalore, you go to the villages where the majority of our population is living. Just having this conversation with them is going to be a very difficult task. Because there are no toilets in the villages? There are no toilets in the villages because the house is considered to be very holy and you're not supposed to have something dirty in the same premise. So this is a major issue. I, I can respect, obviously, the fact that the house is something holy and people don't want something to contaminate the holiness of the house. But you say there's no infrastructure to deal with it even outside of the house? Even having a public washroom... Uh, the men and the women going together, that would be another aspect of it. So, okay, now they build the toilets. Inside the house? It depends. Each and every state is different and each and every state, each and every district might be different. Even according to the language, the way they speak, the what they wear, the food they eat, it could vary very much. So it depends on the policymakers on the ground and the people who are doing the work. Now let's say, now they built a lot of the toilets. But what next? These villagers, they're not very well educated. They are just living on a hand-to-mouth. They don't know how to use these toilets. So over a period of six or eight months, once these toilets got clogged or they, they were not functioning properly, nobody used them. Somebody maybe stole the pipes from one of them or took the seat and sold it. So, you know, there are so many aspects to just having one toilet that people from the developer, they cannot understand it. So which is why just bringing technologies to a culturally diverse hotspot like India, that doesn't work. You need to have people lots of people on the ground who understand it, understand the way the people are living and then customize it according to them. I see Anirudh's example and I want to raise him. Ooh. Raise him in the sense of this. Let's say that you had built these toilets and then after having built these toilets, you actually had taught people how to take care of them. Does that solve the problem? Culturally, he said that a woman would not be allowed to go on her own during nighttime to use this facility. And for good reason, because it's actually dangerous for women to go to use facilities at nighttime unless you're providing some kind of protection. But it's not only that. So you've taught people how to maintain them. What is their incentive for maintaining them? How do you know that people are going to rather go and, and defecate in a latrine rather than just going next door or to the like garbage dump, which is right next to their house and doing it there or in the river? Like, how do you educate people to know that this is something good? How many people in the community that you're trying to serve couldn't use this toilet because they're children and it's a pit latrine and they wouldn't be able to do it properly or because they're old or, or disabled or pregnant or you know, so many other things. How are you, as you said, providing protection for women so that women can go and take care of their business at night? And I think that the point that Anirudh was making was, was very, very, very true in the sense that you cannot sit here in Tel Aviv or in San Jose or in Berlin and develop a solution a sanitation solution for a community without actually being there and without actually taking into account people's needs, culture, perspective, preferences, 
as you're building the technology. And then once you have built the technology, the other question you need to ask is, all right, there are foundations like the Gates Foundation that have poured in huge amounts of money, hundreds of millions of dollars to, to solving sanitation issues. Um, why is it they haven't come up with the solution yet? And of course, the answer to the question is, is there is no one solution which is appropriate across all cultures, across all contexts, across all uh, geographic regions, and so on and so forth. And so you need to develop toolkits, but then to work locally in order to find ways to apply them to, to local needs. And, and of course, that's also a problem when you're thinking in terms of a business of how do you scale. Do you do that? Right after the break, Aliza Inbal comes back with an interesting answer. Wish to learn more about Israeli technologies and the Israeli water sector? The people of Israel Newtech will be glad to answer your questions. Log on to IsraelNewtech.com and don't forget to follow Waterline on Facebook to get updates and give us your feedback. You can also follow me on Twitter at IdanC79. And now, back to the episode. Before the break, we heard Aliza Inbal plotting the best way to ensure that good ideas in the world of wash will be realized and beneficial. You need to develop toolkits, but then to work locally in order to find ways to apply them to, to local needs. And, and of course, that's also a problem when you're thinking in terms of a business of how do you scale. Do you do that? So what we, we have a venture builder called the Pairs Challenge. And what our venture builder does is, is precisely that. We used to have an accelerator called the Pairs Challenge. And as an accelerator, we put out a call for proposals and we said to Israelis, bring us your ideas for technologies for developing countries and we'll help accelerate them like everybody else does, like Mass Challenge does and Y Combinator and, and a million other accelerators. And accelerating means we'll help you to work on the business plan. We'll help you find the right partners. And after one time of trying that, we decided that we had to scrap the whole plan. Successful things came out of it, but mm -hmm. I think that was more luck than our doing. <laughs> and we got to start all over again. And the reason was is because it's really easy sitting in a Western country to develop for the needs of Western countries. If you look at your cell phone, you probably have technologies which come from 30 different countries in your cell phone. There's this global ecosystem of innovation, which makes it really easy for someone in South Korea to know what your needs are and to innovate more or less for your needs. It's the global ecosystem of innovation addressing rich people's problems. But when it comes to somebody sitting in a developed country developing for an emerging market, and it really doesn't matter if that's India or Brazil or Burkina Faso, you can't do it without being there. 
because we don't understand enough about those contexts. So what we do in the Pairs Challenge is exactly that. So we stopped recruiting people with good ideas or startups with good ideas, and we started recruiting good people. So we've just launched one now on WASH for humanitarian settings. And what we did as part of this program is we've chosen people that we believe have the capacity to come up with good ideas and to transform those ideas into commercial businesses that are profitable. What that means for us is a mix of people with a business background, a mix of people with technology backgrounds, and with context backgrounds. For us, it's humanitarian settings, so it's also it's a lot of people who've worked in humanitarian aid. And we stick them all together and spend months helping them learn about needs, learn about the context, learn about what we know about challenges and problems and, and things that they would have to address along the way. After all of that, when they begin to develop their own ideas, then we start doing the traditional accelerator thing of helping them develop their business model and connect to investors and so on. Who are the teachers? Uh, we have actually brought in f from the Humanitarian Innovation Fund several teachers for this whose area of expertise is developing new companies with WASH solutions for humanitarian settings, so for refugee camps, displaced people, crises of different sorts, um, natural disasters, like weather-related disasters, war, so on. So we've brought them in. The person who's our content manager just came back from six and a half years in South Sudan. So we bring all of this expertise into Israel, and the idea behind it is to help reduce very significantly the barriers to entry for an innovator that wakes up in the morning and says, I want to do something which has global impact and not just something which has an impact on California or on Berlin. We've added a new component to it this year, and we're looking for people interested in joining this new component. We're doing a pilot where we're saying that we're going to take as well Companies that already have water, sanitation, and hygiene products that want to explore whether or not they can adapt those products and bring them into developing country settings or adapt those products and bring them into humanitarian settings. And we're going to work with them and provide a package for them as part of this to help them go through that mental process of figuring out whether their product could actually have profitable applications in developing country or emergency context. So how do you come about funding this? So I think that there's a number of different routes to funding it. So on the one hand, you can say that there are a lot of um, humanitarian aid agencies, NGOs, governments that care about this issue and would be willing to fund for handwashing stations to go in schools if they could be proven to work. So that's one way of looking at it, and that's one of the approaches that this particular company is taking to trying to figure out how they're going to go into more and more schools and become more scaled. So, for example, in India, they have a partnership with an Indian NGO that has been raising money from donors in order to try to fund placement of these hand-washing stations. And I think that ultimately, in the long run, another possibility is, is if you can show data showing that kids are getting sick less often because of it, then as a result of which you're actually saving money to the state on health care. I'm going to be a cynic. I'm going to be extremely Western. I'm going to be extremely privileged by saying what I'm going to say now. You talk about public expenditure on health in the developing country. 
I don't see it happening. I don't believe that there's any public expenditure on health in what used to be called the third world. <laughs> Am I mistaken? Uh, well, let's take India as an example. Uh, in India, it's estimated by 2030 that the healthcare sector is going to be a $250 billion sector. Compare that to the U.S., Okay. Uh, so India obviously is is a very large country, and when you look at it in absolute terms and of GDP, it's a very rich country. I would assume, though, that it's India's. Yes, there are rich Indians and there are poor Indians. But the Indian government actually does spend a lot of money on bringing health care to poor Indians. And more important than that, in India, there are, there's a lot of legislation to mandate that corporations give a percentage of their profits to corporate social responsibility. And even in the healthcare system, so India has a very, very well-developed private healthcare system to the point where a lot of people from developed countries will go to India in order to be operated on at cheaper costs than they can be in, in the U.S., And all of these private hospitals under law have to also serve less advantaged populations, poorer populations. So there is a lot of money, but it's not even just in India. Even if you look at countries that are more reliant on donor financing, one of the major areas of financing is in, in water and health care. And health care includes preventative health care like washing your hands. So the money exists. But I think that if I was going to give advice to a company that said, well, you know, I have this technology now that I want to use in order to address the problem of poor people worldwide in, in lower-income countries, the truth is, is that probably the most prevalent strategy that we've found for doing that is not let us find the donor organization, charitable organization, government that's going to give money for a product – But rather, we've seen a very big trend towards dual-use technologies. So I'll give you another example simply because it's the one that comes close, easiest to mind, not of a wash company, of a healthcare company. Cervical cancer is a very big um, health hazard, particularly in developing countries. It's one of the largest killers of women of fertile age, so um, adult women, in Africa, for example. It isn't a very large killer of women in developed countries. Because of the vaccine for HPV, the human papillomavirus? And because that it's very easy to screen for cervical cancer. And so as long as you're doing screening and it's located, it can be cured. So the cure is actually a quite a cheap cure and quite a simple cure and a very accessible cure. But in order to be cured, you have to be screened. And in order to be screened, you have to have a laboratory. So an Israeli company came up with a, a technology which can diagnose um, whether or not a person most probably has cervical cancer using a camera that gets fit on any smartphone, on the simplest smart cell phone that you have, and that camera will be able to diagnose. So this company went out and they said, you know, we have this wonderful life-saving technology, which is particularly relevant for places where there are very undeveloped health systems. And investors said to them, great, because that would be perfect for American medical clinics where doctors might want to do screening in their clinic rather than having to send these pap smears off to a laboratory. So if you stop trying to think about the African market and you start trying to think about the American market, then no problem, we'll fund you. 
Uh, and your reaction to that is great. However, no, great. And and the reason it's great is because, to be entirely honest, it's true for healthcare, and it's more true so for water. The amount of time it takes to succeed in taking one of these technologies and putting them in a resource-poor setting is much longer than the amount of time it would take to succeed in the American market when you're selling to higher-income people. Sounds counterintuitive. Um, It isn't because you need to sell to a lot less people. You have a lot higher margins. And and the distribution markets are networks are already there. It's like when Mobile ODT, this company that has cancer screening, went to African countries, they had to spend a huge amount of time negotiating with health systems to get them to take their product rather than just going out and starting to sell to doctors in the U.S. So it's a much shorter path to market. And so, for example, I spent this morning having a roundtable discussion with a lot of different Israeli VCs and with the prime minister's office in order to try to understand what would make an Israeli investor say, I see Soapy and I want to invest because I believe that they have a great chance of success in India. And the truth is, is that most VCs say, no, it's not relevant for us at all because we want a quick exit. And Western markets today provide quick exits that even these fast-going countries like India can't provide. When we look for companies, we're looking for companies that on the one hand are in it for the long haul and see the long game and also value not only the profits that they can make, but also the impact that they can have that are looking at the statistics and saying, look, there's 2.5 billion people in the world who don't have access to sanitation, or there's 600 million people who don't have access to clean water. And I believe that in the long run, it's good business to be able to help solve those problems for those people. So we're looking for those companies, but we understand those companies are going to have to find other ways to make money in the short term in order for in the long term for them to succeed at that. So you're not trying to educate a market. You're trying to educate VCs because it sounds to me that the innovators and the the people who develop those life-saving products Mm -hmm. are far more aware of their ability to impact people's lives no matter where they're from. So both of you, the innovator and you as peers, need to teach VCs to think in a broader manner. I think that the world of impact is very new. And it's very new for everyone. It's new for investors. It's new for innovators. It's new for distributors. It's new for everyone. It's new for development organizations. Uh, Because once... The way that things worked was is that you had two worlds. You had the world of philanthropy and you had the world of business. So business people didn't really ask the question, am I helping anybody? They asked the question of how much money I can make. And um, philanthropies or um, donors or aid agencies asked the question, who do I need to donate to in order to make people's lives better? But they didn't really think about profit and not only did they not think about profit, if anyone had said to them, let's think about viable, sustainable business models, they would have said, what, what, you want to exploit people? And I think that this idea of shared value, which Michael Porter from Harvard Business School talked about, the idea that the companies of the future that are going to succeed are the companies that actually care not only about their bottom line, but also about the social value that they're bringing 
to humanity, that's an idea which is very new. So I think everyone needs to be educated. And you'll find in every sector, you'll find the investors who, who are there. You'll find the innovators who are there. But it's still a very, very nascent, a very early stage concept. So there's a party going on in the developing country. And you're saying Israel is a bit late to the party. And I would assume that other Western developers and innovators might be late to the party as well. All right. So let's talk about this party. So before I was weather and worried about my child at daycare getting sick, um, I used to go to dancing, right? So what happens when you go dancing? If you show up at 11 o'clock when you can get in for free, there's nobody in the room. And so there's one or two people, and it's very often the same one or two people, and usually the one or two people know each other. Great. Uh, so, yes, we missed that. We missed the free entry um, with the one or two people in the room. But then, and that would be what, Oxfam? <laughs> no, it would be, it, no, no, it would be impact investors and tech companies and, and so on that are there first. I'm a lot less interested in philanthropy than I am in sustainable business models. I'm interested in seeing how companies can make a profit from delivering real value to people who need it. So, no, I'm not so interested in Oxfam except for as a client because Oxfam does do a lot of work in water and they buy a lot of water technologies. So, yes, in that sense, I am interested in Oxfam, but they're not the party people I'm looking for. So, but then you get to a point, you know, where the, the evening starts to heat up and more and more start, people start coming and there are already people on the dance floor, but you haven't yet gotten to the point where the dance floor is a little suffocating because there's way too many people there. That's the point we're at now. So there's room. There's a lot of room. And we're really only at the beginning of harnessing the power of technology to address these huge development problems. The world has now declared the Sustainable Development Goals, which are the goals that the whole world has set for, for what we want to do in terms of providing clean water, sanitation, hygiene, health care, so on and so forth to the whole world, not just developing countries. Trillions of dollars are going to be invested over the next 15, 20 years in achieving these sustainable development goals. So that money is more and more coming online now. Um, distribution networks, which make it possible for that money to actually lead to the point where people have a product online, are more and more being built. Um, and this is actually the perfect time to come to the party. What's uh, in store for us? I, I don't know what's in store. Uh, but I do know what we need to do. We need to purify water at point of use more cheaply. We need to get beyond this present situation of trucking in water and then trucking out waste. We need more ways to, to manage waste locally and mobilely. We need to be able to move technologies that can be moved from place to place more quickly and that can serve large amounts of people. We need better education technologies in order to disseminate information about water, about sanitation, about hygiene. But I think that the real challenge ahead of us, which will be solved without us, and then the party is going to really get started, is finding better networks in order to disseminate the innovation which does come out. Because I think that like within a lot of these humanitarian aid organizations that are, are looking for solutions, they, they don't quite know how to handle the solutions they're asking for yet. 
And there's a lot, a lot of talk now in UNICEF and UNHCR and all these large organizations in Oxfam, which have very large budgets for dealing with these problems, about how do we work better with the innovator community, with the technology community, so that innovators can do what they do better than we do, which is come up with really good solutions to problems. And we can do our part, which is finding ways to get those solutions out there to the people who need them most. Waterline was brought to you by Israel Newtek and is a PI Media production.